I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about our week in review, what movies we've watched or TV shows since our last episode, move on to our main event, which is a topic of discussion or a main review, then finish off with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite films around a particular topic, typically marching back through time. In this episode, our main event is... Sorry to bother you, and... Our film phase will be covering the year... 1995. That's right, and what a great year it is. It'll be really exciting to dive into that. But first, let's start with our week in review. I have had nothing this week to indulge upon. I was going to start The Handmaid's Tale Season 2, but uh, it's full moon, and in case anybody else out there is feeling it, now's not the time to watch that show. (laughs) So... What did you get to watch by yourself? I did get to watch a few things. I'm going to start with, I believe it's 1990s Australian Western, Quigley Down Under. Now, this is an interesting little movie starring Tom Selleck and, what's her name, Laura Sangiacomo, and, or Giacomo, and Alan Rickman. Oh, that's cool. Now, this is Alan Rickman, fresh off of Die Hard, which came out two years before and was kind of his theatrical debut in, uh, in film. And so he was kind of playing one villain after another. And then, interestingly enough, I think it was the next year, or 1992, he played the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So he had this uh, really great, like, triple feature of villains you know just really delicious villains and this was one of them you know i've seen i grew up with this movie i seen it when i was 11 or whatever i remember really liking it but it's uh it's interesting because it takes place in australia basically tom Selleck plays a guy named matt quigley who travels all the way to australia from uh, north america uh, for a job that he doesn't really know what the job is but he knows that alan rickman's in in search for a really good sharpshooter. It turns out the job is actually to uh, kill off Aborigines off of Alan Rickman's land. Oh, wow. Which Matthew Quigley is not a fan of and instantly becomes rivals between uh, Rickman and and Tom Selleck. Along the way is Laura San Giacomo, who, Shanna, you know from The Stand. She was not your favorite character. Oh, God, I hated that person. Right. So. Well, the character. I hated the character. And I'm not sure you would like her much in this one either because oh, she does. Sakes. She just play like a crazy. I think her name is Crazy Kara, in this. And it's really we learn because there's a trauma that happened in the past that has kind of broken her or whatever, and so she's a little bit loopy. But the reason why this is a little bit unique and curious is not just because of its Australian uh, environment and the fact that it, it it was probably the first film I saw growing up that prominently featured Aborigines, uh, possible exception of Crocodile Dundee 2 aside, I'm not sure. But it's a little crazy that it exists because it's directed by Simon Windsor, who really he directed the miniseries Lonesome Dove like the year before or the same year. It was a really great Western miniseries. But after uh, getting Quigley Down Under, 
He then went on to direct Free Willy, Lightning Jack, Operation Dumbo Drop, 1995 movie, The Phantom, and Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Not a very good career. And the guy who wrote the script was a guy who just did a handful of TV shows. So the pedigree is very curious. But uh, apparently this is a movie that's been developed for years before they finally got it. Um, the score is really great. I gotta give a quick shout out to the score. Uh, the composer is Basil Polidorus, who's a name that doesn't really ring any bells for me, but he apparently is the guy who scored Robocop, Lonesome Dove, The Hunt for Red October, and several other films. And Eagle Eye Cinephiles will catch a 21-year-old Ben Mendelsohn in this film whose career really didn't take off until 2010's Animal Kingdom, and now he's in almost every single franchise uh, that you can think of, usually as a villain, like Star Wars Rogue One. So, anyway, I enjoy Quigley Down Under. I feel like Alan Rickman is absolutely delicious in it, but there's definitely some room for improvement in the, the script, it, it was one of the movies that really helped turn me on westerns. I was in a phase where I hated westerns. And this and a handful of others like Unforgiven and Tombstone uh, turned me around on it. I think Silverado also probably. Mm. But yeah. So that is uh, Quickly Down Under from 1990. And I believe you can actually catch it on like Netflix or one of the streaming services too. I happen to have access to a DVD copy. Next, I saw... Pacific Rim Uprising. I kind of spared you, Shanna, from this one. More of a curiosity than anything else for me because I did hear it was not as good as the first one. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy the first Pacific Rim. I think we both had fun with it, yeah? Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, not one of Guillermo del Toro's best films for sure, but, you know, for sheer fun of Idris Elba um, shouting platitudes and... Having giant robots fighting giant monsters. Putting people in their place. Right. Being the chief, the commander. Exactly. Whatever it is. It was a lot of fun. Is it a general? I have no idea what the rank is. I can't remember anymore. (laughs) At any rate, this one does not star Idris Elba. It does have three or four returning cast members from the first movie, one of which they kill off in the first 20 minutes. Well, that's stupid. Which is very disappointing. Another one they do a huge twist on, which I won't spoil, but it really was like, I had to actually look it up on Wikipedia and make sure I'm following this thing right. Like, did I just, is this really what's happening? What's happening right now? It was very off-putting. This is not as good a movie at all. It tries. It wants to be a fun movie with uh, a lot of quotable quotes. It does star John Boyega. And he's kind of the centerpiece of that. And he's definitely making some lines that are, that feel like they're intended to be those kinds of things where you're like, you quote it to your friends, or you're like, remember when he said that in Pacific Rim Uprising? And it just all falls flat. I think part of the problem is this movie jumps right into an action scene within the first five minutes before you actually get to know or care about why we care about what's happening action-wise to these characters. Um, and that kind of sums up the main problems of this movie. Had that said, when giant fucking robots are beating up giant fucking monsters, it is the sole piece of joy that you get out of this film. 
that part is fun. It's maybe a 10 minute sequence though in, in a two hour film. So I definitely can't recommend it. It is a letdown if you're a fan of the first film, but I could see you feeling obligated to want to check it out as a fan of the first film. Just keep your expectations low. Mm -hmm. So that's Pacific Rim Uprising. And lastly, I saw The Thoroughbreds, which is this kind of a thriller drama. I think I was upset that you watched that without me. You shouldn't be. I don't know that you would really like it. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cooke, two actresses I really enjoy lately. Olivia Cooke, Shanna, you know from Ready Player One and a couple other things uh, this year. I think she's quite appealing as an actress. Anya Taylor-Joy is a very unique and interesting actress. She was in the M. Night Shyamalan film, what, last year? Uh, Called... You're not thinking of Split? Split. Oh, okay, Yes. She's the lead in Split. So here's the problem. Oh no, I did want to see this. This movie is kind of like Heather's without the actual relationship of the girls. In the sense that it does, I, I was thinking about this and I realized like not only is this very dry, very deadpan, very slow, but and, and not necessarily pleasant because the characters aren't necessarily likable. But it do, it does not, it's not winking at the audience, it's not sly, it's not witty, and you don't really get a sense of why these two girls really would continue hanging out with each other, let alone plotting what they plot. Uh, okay. um, it is, uh, it, some people might be interested in checking it out because it is Anton Yelchin's final performance. Aww. He has, I want to say 10-15 minutes worth of screen time in the film throughout. Maybe a little bit more, but not much more. He has a supporting role in it as someone who tries to get roped into their scheme. And of course, he's Anton Yelchin, so he was he was really good in it. But I just don't. I, I just um, I kind of tolerated the movie and sat through it. So after the first twenty minutes of the movie, I was really not into it. And I really think it has a lot to do with its tone and its lack of character development. One of the characters played by Olivia Cook is really emotionally detached, and that very much exemplifies this film. So even though this film got 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, I am going against them this time. Uh, I do not recommend The Thoroughbreds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you are still curious, you can check that out and rent it on Amazon, I believe. So that's everything I have seen recently, but Shanna, you and I have caught up with a couple comedies, one from this year, which I believe we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, and one from last year. Let's start with the one we saw longest ago. That was Blockers, which was kind of a sex comedy that came out earlier this year, starring... Oh, I didn't see it as a sex comedy. I saw it as like a parents learning to let go comedy well what are they like trying to let go of right it's it's their daughters are trying to have sex yeah right and it does focus more on the parents which includes john cena and leslie mann it also stars ike barinholt who's not a name that i recognize as much as a face i recognize in a lot of things and the, the teens in question are Catherine newton geraldine vishwanathan who's kind of a mvp of this movie 
and if I remember correctly, Gideon Adlon. This is an F-rated film. Yes, it's very exciting. Yes, it is directed, it's a directorial debut of Kay Cannon, who wrote the script to Pitch Perfect 2, which was a triple F-rated film that was directed by Elizabeth Banks a couple years back. Shannon, what did you think of Blockers? Did it live up to its reputation as the comedy to see of 2018? I actually didn't know that it was the comedy to see. I thought it was going to be an irritating film, Mm. and I actually found that it was pleasantly enjoyable. Yeah. And hilarious, and not like, oh, let's really push the hilarity. There's one gag. Where I'm like, oh, we're going to go there? Mm, oh, this yeah. is an American film. Of course right. we're going to go there. Right. Um, it's very American Pie-like. Just to let you know, yeah. we're going to put this gag in there so we have no confusion. So, you know, once pa- pushing through that gag, mm-hmm. you know, everything else is really fun about it. It's really relatable, mm. especially if you're a parent. I would be curious to know how teenagers view it. Or people who are coming out of their teenagehood. So people that are high school sure. seniors. Maybe even someone who is like, I don't know what the age restriction on this is, but it's... It, it's Definitely you know. rated R. Well, I'm, I'm curious about like, well, what would a 16-year-old think about this? Uh-huh. They've, they've got that you know, uh-huh. in their life coming up. And I can totally relate to this film because one of the, the girls is like, fuck it, let's get it over and done with. Right, Let me right. lose my virginity and... That's that's to you know share a little bit about me. That's kind of how I felt. It was too much pressure mm. to wait and not know when it was going to happen and what if I wasn't in control of it happening. There's a high rape count in South Africa, and I I felt like I needed to take control and be like be the one to say okay, let's do this. That said, it's a very different place than that very, teenager comes from. Yeah, it's and very her, different. And her ultimate conclusion, too. Well, yeah, because you know people can change, and yeah. people can change their minds, and people can evolve their idea of what they want. Yeah. And I'm just saying that it's very relatable in that, but it's also relatable in, like, <laughs> I really enjoyed John Cena's wife because she was like, do you not trust her to make her own decisions? And Right. And, and that was very... That was a good point, but then I also liked the girl that's going to start this all off. Yeah. Her boyfriend was texting his parents the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And keeping them very, very open relationship and really keeping them in the loop about his sexuality and sexual encounters and experiences, and I just thought that that was so cute, and... I don't know if I would... I would certainly invite that to my kid because if they wanted that option, it's like, well, here it is, you know. It's, but I don't know well, if I would take it the same as they do. Let's also it's very be fun. clear. These characters played by Gary Cole and Junior Gershon are very much the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm almost cartoons in terms of their sexuality, too. Yes, yes, you know. but hilarious. Yes. So. And also, I should back up and mention John Cena's wife is played by Sarah Yu Blue. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, plays Marcy. And it's interesting they include that they pause the movie for that moment of contemplation because it, it actually puts the politics, so to speak, of the movie in question. 
Mm. You know, the movie is very much in favor of the parents for the most part because we spend the most time with the parents. But really, what are the parents trying to do? They're trying to, quote, unquote, save their girls. And also, there is a certain lack of trust there on their girls of not being able to make their own uh, judgments. And so, well, like, I, I, never, can, I never saw it as a save. I always saw it as a stop. Right. I either way, like I mean, I the fathers are definitely, or at least one of the fathers, definitely trying to save the girl from the guy, because the way he responds to the the boy teenager is definitely not favorable. <laughs> right. I think that's the one issue with the movie. I think it's fine. It's funny. It's not. It's a good, enjoyable comedy i think game night is a better comedy so far this year if i were to weigh the two that came out the first half of the year oh, okay you know yeah but i think i think the the issue that blockers has is it does get a little confused in what it is trying to say and when you actually are have a character that is saying something and it doesn't have any time for it like literally you have a character who manipulates their way to to moving on to their objective. Well, I felt like, I felt it was just like showing the involvement of what you go through as a parent when your kid is going yeah. to make that decision, to well, go through with that decision, or to not. It doesn't matter. As soon as you, as a parent, realize that that's on your child's mind, mm. I mean, like, you go from completely pedantic, stressed out, oh no. Do you really know what you're doing? And you forget mm. that uh, most parents do a good job. You forget that you did a good job and that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. They're m making the right call. They're taking good precautions. I also really liked how they portrayed the boys, the boyfriends. Yeah, in, in this especially song. the redhead. Oh, God, poor little redhead. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just... It was really sweet that it wasn't just about the girls taking charge, mm -hmm. but it was the boys being respectful. And I thought that was so great. Yeah, it boys definitely... Boys don't have to be the evil one. There is definitely some... To a degree, there's some serious consideration of it and, and some, some valid things to say about uh, sex. And it's worth talking about between you and your partner after seeing the movie where you land on it but that's blockers and i believe that's available to rent on amazon and other platforms let's move on next uh, we watched girls trip yes we caught up with that which <laughs> it's almost been a year since that came out so mm -hmm. we're really really slow and that stars jada pinkett smith Queen Latifah, tiffany haddish mm -hmm. and regina hall now tiffany haddish that's one who broke out from this movie. Everybody was talking about Tiffany Haddish. And finally we're figuring out what the deal is with Tiffany Haddish oh, is. Oh, God. She's so great. They're all great. I really love this film. Tell, talk a little bit about that. Well, okay. Maybe we should, you know, just in case people didn't know, this is about a group of friends who have been out of touch for a while and they're going to get together again because... Who is it that gets invited? Is it Regina Hall? Yes, Regina, Regina Hall's the Hall. successful one. She gets invited. Well, they all have their own level of success. Let's not judge you. I'm so, not judging. <laughs> she has, been, but the thing is, she has made it to be a presenter at the Ebony Festival. So 
the Ebony magazine. Right. Is that right? I think it was Ebony. I could be wrong. I'm but. pretty sure it was Ebony, and it's like this... Uh, it looks like a celebration of note and just yeah. so many different faces that we got to see, different African-American actresses and actors. And she decides, Regina Hall, that she's going to invite the friends over and they're going to celebrate yeah. because they're going to, I believe it's New Orleans. And, and it should be clarified, these are friends from college, I believe. Yeah, like, they've, they've been, been through, through everything together. But it's just in the last few years they've been out of touch. And we figure right. out, you know, it unfolds why they're out of touch and yeah. what's going on there. Yeah, exactly. But the awesome thing about this film is... They all have each other's back. They all mm. are there for each other when it's time to be there, when it's really time to be there. Yeah. And they will back each other up no matter how the other one felt about it. Yeah. Or, but they will let it off their chests. Like, you fucked up in ABCD fashion, and you messed up in EFG, and, and they go away for like a 24-hour period, and then they come back together, and they're stronger than ever, and... I've never had that experience. As soon as something goes wrong with a friend, it's over. Mm. You know, I've never had a bounce back friendship. Can you relate to bounce back friendships? Well, I, this is what I found interesting, and I, I suspect it was such a wildly successful film because it really connected with a lot of a lot of women and their friendships. But what was interesting is even though. A couple of them have an issue. They're, they're still friends. And, and even though they don't communicate about that issue and work it out, they're still friends. They still show up together to, to be there for each other, like you said, and still have each other's back. They have shit to resolve, but they don't let that destroy their friendship. And I thought that was really unique and, and special. And I think that any... Any audience member who has that in their life is really should embrace that, and I think that this film will definitely speak to them. And I know that it exists. Uh -huh. I've seen other people go through that kind of thing. Yeah. But I personally have never been through that, and maybe it's just I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I just really, really do not like confrontation. I don't know. And you know. I let's point out the obvious and not be blind to it this is a group of african-american women and maybe there's something very much about african-american the friendships and the bonds between african-american women here you oh know? yeah that, that's definitely a good point i mean they they definitely point out the differences throughout the movie of white boys or white girls versus black people and their attitudes sort of things yeah well, and there's definitely, like, a shocking moment. Who is it from Private Practice, the spin-off from Grey's Anatomy, that was yes. Jamie's wife? What is her Ye name? Yes, I, I know who you're talking about. Is it Kate Walsh? Yes, Kate Walsh. Yes. Kate Walsh. So Kate Walsh is Regina Hall's publicist, or... Yes, yes. I don't know what she is. Agent, yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. there we go. And I think she's just so excited, like, you know, and then racist, too. And so it's it's got these things that she does that she shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, she says things that she says. She says things, and yes. it's like that's that's not for you, yes. sweetheart. Yes, <laughs> you I need to find your own stuff. <laughs> I feel like she. I, I like Kate Walsh quite a bit, but I feel like um, she was slightly miscast. I got this feeling like they really wanted Kristen Wiig, but they couldn't get Kristen Wiig. That would have been a good fit. Yeah. I feel like someone like Kristen Wiig would have pulled that roll off and those lines off a little bit better than Kate Walsh does 
and I, I feel like she's kind of the weakest link of an otherwise pretty solid but not great comedy. I, I like her anyway. I mm-hmm. just I, I enjoy watching her. Yeah, it's uh, nice to see her in mm-hmm. things. I just think that she someone else probably could have handled the comic timing and the li- the mm-hmm. line delivery a little bit better to make those land the way they're trying to. Yeah. Well, and before we move on, I just want to say like this is the next like to me for me this is like the next bridesmaids mm. movie because they don't hold back for so long female comedies have sure. held back and yeah. now female comedies are like no we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about penises and we're right. going to talk about vaginas and we're going to talk about grapefruits so now we finally know what the grapefruit gag is and i guess um no pun intended on gag bad stuff is going to happen to to us girls like peeing where we shouldn't pee you know and <laughs> Yeah. And every time something bad happens, all these girls are there for each other, and yeah. they're either participating in it too, to make the other one feel not alone, or, you know, to push the distraction onto themselves, or they're they're just there holding each other's hands, and it just, it's something that I would like to strive for. Sure, <clears throat> and it accomplishes all this a lot better than Rough Night, which also came out that year. Oh, good God, Rough Night was awful. Yeah. It was so stupid comparatively. Yeah. And it was so, stupid by itself, actually. So that's Girls Trip, which I believe is on HBO now, and you can also rent on Amazon. All right, so let's get into our main event, which is our review of Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Baby, baby, it will always matter. Hey, Cash, how much longer I gotta wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you wanna hog it to yourself and your family and. Me and my family? Yeah. Cash, I'm your fing uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is still marketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, Mr. Davidson. Cash the screen here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young man. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. You're going upstairs. Power caller. They even have their own elevator. Welcome, power caller. I hope you did not masturbate today. We need you sharp and ready to go. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling yeah. the we selling. No, but there's no amount of money that make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm gonna have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash, I'm gonna make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering. Cash, you are awesome. And that was from the trailer to Sorry to Bother You. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> this it's got is... such a cool soundtrack, and it's just really spunky. Yes. 
So this is the directorial debut of Boots Riley, and it stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Danny Glover, Stephen Young, and Army Hammer. This is basically about a African-American man who is trying to get ahead in, uh, trying to get a job and then try to get ahead in yeah. said job. It ends up being a telemarketing job. And he learns from Danny Glover that in order to be successful, he needs to adopt his white man's voice. And that's about all I'm going to say from there, aside from there being a, a unionizing conflict involved as well with his girlfriend and friends. It's also worth noting the white man's voice, voices, I didn't realize this, I don't know if you recognize this, but the white man's voices are played by David Cross, Patton Oswalt, and Lily James. Worthwhile. Also, Forrest Whitaker makes an appearance much later in the film, but you would not know it unless I had told you. And Terry Crews also co stars. Yes, where the hell was Forrest Whitaker? We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So what we like to do when we review a film is first talk about the good, what we liked about a film, and then talk about the bad, what we didn't like or didn't work about a film before having general discussion of any ideas, themes, or questions that the movie raises uh, before moving on to spoilers and final thoughts. And boy, is there going to be a big spoiler and final thoughts section with this review so we're not kidding yeah so uh we will first talk a little bit about what we liked about the film shanna where do you even begin what did you like about sorry to bother you <laughs> i really liked how incredibly bizarre a world this was but how incredibly relatable and how you can very quickly draw the parallels to your own world that we're living in right now mm. kind of film I like that. I like when they make it look really bizarre, but you're like, oh, wait a second. You're commenting on the political environment. Oh, wait a minute. You're commenting on the class situation that we are running into mm. right now. And then all of a sudden, they, you know, they'll, there's a lot that this movie comments on, mm -hmm. and there's only so much that I can relate to. I'm not going to claim to relate to anything African American because that's not what I. That's not sure, who I am. Sure. But what I can relate to is just trying to freaking survive mm. um, financially and, you know, always being in this financial struggle. And you think that you've got it, you think that you've got it, and then you don't. And this is definitely something that entrepreneurs can relate to. And I forget that sometimes this is what sales salespeople can relate to, mm. especially if they're only being paid if they sell. So anyway, I could strongly relate to the whole need to get ahead of the game. And then what will always happen is, they show this a lot in films, but I think it's true in life too. They'll show the person, you know, getting ahead of the game, financially speaking. And then all of a sudden they realize that there's a bunch of other stuff that's lacking. Hmm. And I think that's what happened in this film. You know, there were other factors too that we'll talk about later, but... I really enjoyed the surrealism. I really enjoyed the camera techniques mm -hmm. and yes. effects. Yes. When he starts climbing the financial ladder, financial get, gaining financial success, as he hands that check to his uncle that he needs to oh, pay because yeah. uh -huh. he's backed up in rent, 
there's absolute relief and he goes to his girlfriend and he kisses her and they fall to the bed well and as they're moving around things around them start changing yes so like there's a i think there's like a tv upgrade a lamp upgrade so yeah. all the little things that you would love to they're upgrade. happening around them while to they're be clear yeah yeah while they're doing you know their little makeout session uh-huh. and then as soon as they hit the bed it becomes even more detailed because then what starts happening is the sheets change and it's like right. everybody can relate to that right. you know right. and their clothing changes and it's all of a sudden you pan out and they're in a great apartment yeah and so these little techniques mm-hmm. and, 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 and little things that through some good or uh, what do you call set uh, design tricks and camera tricks and well, stuff. Well, cool. Whatever they did, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. And everybody can relate to that when they get a few steps ahead. And mm. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the characters. I felt like, you know, you had the artist girlfriend who is very serious and uh, very political. committed to her political statements through her art uh-huh. and that was lovely especially at the end I mean in the beginning I see her making uh, shapes of the African continent out of different materials and uh-huh. at first I'm like well that's cool but then you see it in full context later and that was really fascinating her performance piece was just Oh my gosh, I could never do that. A little out so, there, yeah. Yeah, but really shows her level of commitment and passion to her art form. So did you like Tessa Thompson in that and her performance in that role? Oh yeah, I'd love to see her in much more. Yeah, well, she you have seen her in a lot too because she was in Thor Ragnarok and, and yes. um, I saw her in Creed, I believe, and, and she's going to be in Creed too. And so she's, she's having a moment for sure. Something else that was really great about this film was... You know, not only did they show you what people worry about, so having the financial success, financial freedom, financial, uh-huh. just being okay financially, they also showed like this sneaky way of taking care of it created by the government or created by an entrepreneur. Taking care of what? Well, so you have a worry, right? You have a worry that you don't have enough money okay, and that you're struggling. So then they say, okay, well, come and come at your own free will and be incarcerated, essentially, and do labor for accommodation and meals. You're talking about the the major company that's advertised a lot. What is that called again? Worry-free, worry... It is like a worry-free... That's yeah. like their slogan. But essentially, it's like this new form of slave labor. Which, there's protesting in the film yeah. uh, towards it. And now there's this new option in this film where it's like, oh, you don't have to struggle. You don't have to try and make a living getting minimum wage and always struggling to pay things. No, come and, come and live here and work for us mm-hmm. and we'll give you a bed right. and meals and clothes. Yep. Right. And it's not really anything truly special it's an it's a more aggressive form of like slaves uh slave concept but it's just really interesting that that pops up and you're like when i saw the advertisement i was like that looks great at first and then Mm. i think about it just a little bit and i'm like well that means no privacy because they're all different couples uh in these very closed quarters and they're on triple bunk beds and they're sharing a bunk bed yep so it's just really interesting okay uh anything else uh, you liked about the movie you want to speak to right now 
I think the rest that I have is for the spoiler section. Okay. What did you think? So, first of all, this is actually a really impressive directorial debut. I'm not really sure if Boots Riley has done anything else, short films or otherwise, before this film, but he definitely has a creative, unique, and very confident handle on this story and this film. I really, really appreciated this film for how creative and unique it is. I mean, just like, for example, you were talking about some of the different tricks he impl- he implements one of them that stood out to me early on in the movie is when he's making his telemarketing calls you are as a telemarketer being having been someone like this you are trying to be there with the person on the other line in trying to get trying to say the right things to be there longer with the person on the other line and what they what boots does visually is plops lakeith stanfield's character from the office down in his desk plops right in front of the person he's calling i thought that was a really cool and uh, fun little visual flair and he does a bunch of different cuts and other things that add a lot of spice to the visuals of the story now what's also interesting about this movie is how real and grounded it feels and you kind of feel like you have your footing for majority of the film even though they throw in this white man's voice element it it almost could be like a comedy by spike lee or something but you end up having a little bit more of these quirky flares that like spike jones or michelle gondry might have in their films and i'm not being original by making that comparison other people have made that comparison too but i i it's definitely something that is quite apt so it's it's interesting i don't know if that's something that boots actively was actively inspired by but it's definitely there this movie has a lot of ideas this movie's saying a lot of things this movie is a film that you have a lot to chew on when you walk away from this isn't ever this isn't a film for everybody this is not a broad comedy this is not a movie that's probably going to break into the top 10 of the summer summer movie season. I don't imagine it's going to be wildly successful because it is just just left of center, just different in my, at least the first two-thirds. Then it gets wildly left of center. You think you have this film figured out, and then it wildly zags when you're thinking it's going to zig. And you kind of don't know what to think about the movie at first. Like, what did I just experience? And I think that alone is worth appreciating. When a movie does that, you know you have seen something interesting. You know you've seen something different. And you, so it's worth appreciating just for that alone. But we'll get into, I think, in spoilers, how all that works and whether or not we know or think everything coheres well. Was there anything that stood out to you in the film, Shanna, that you really did not think worked? I don't recall anything that didn't work for me. And perhaps when you start talking, maybe I'll think of something. 
But there was nothing that really stood out to me as, oh, well, that doesn't belong here or mm-hmm. that that's wildly inaccurate. I didn't have any feelings of that. Or anything feel weak or uh, problematic or what have you? Not that I can recall, but let's mm-hmm. hear what you have to say. I'm well, sure you picked up on something. Well... I don't know about that, but we'll get into spoilers in a moment. I do want to just really briefly, before we move into spoilers, ask what you think about the socio-political aspect of this movie. It's in the first two thirds, at the very least. Just taking the surface of it, you have a black guy who has to adopt a white man's voice in order to succeed and become white in a in a way in order to maintain success taking it on its own terms what do you think about the themes and the the thoughts this movie has to say i think that the film is doing something very important not all white people or very little white people are exposed to what it is like for an african-american to be in this very dominantly white world Hmm. white run world and it's important for us to see films that comment on that because for a lot of us i mean we you know we might not think of something in a particular way Mm -hmm. i loved what they did with the character of the white voice it's very whiny yeah nasally too yeah it's very (laughs) i'm goofy right it's very perky yeah, and it's yeah. like, at the same time, it's like, I'm smaller than you. Like, I, I'm not here to control you. I just, I'm like saying hi. Submissive, hi, you're hi. saying. Yeah, the submissive thing. And it's just so interesting. And then you hear the, the his own voice and you're like, oh, wow, that's so potent. That's so strong. That's awesome. Mm. And I just found that that was very interesting. And later you hear other characters doing it too Mm -hmm. and part of me feels that this is very difficult and this should not be the case and whatever I can do to change it I'll do it because I don't feel and what I'm referring to is someone who is whoever they are should not have to change themselves do you think that that it it works in the movie like that it's Getting its message across and it's, it coheres to, to the rest of the story? I mean, I think so. What do you think? Well, I think as it's very creative way of delivering its point. I think it's apparently, you watch the trailers before this movie, this is the first of a series of sociopolitical films about african-americans in our society and we're going to have a very interesting fall season i think this is probably going to be the most fun of of what we're about to see because it does have fun with it michael phillips of the chicago chicago tribune said that this movie is very witty but it's not punching down with its wit it's definitely punching up it's not mean in its attitudes and its uh, humor and what it what it's doing, uh, i.e. the white man's voice and other other elements of comedy. It's definitely pun, uh, kind of an uppercut and and hitting its target 
well, right? So I think it's very effective. I think it's very interesting. And it's definitely prompts one to think, hopefully, below the surface of what's going on. What is it that is actually trying to communicate? And hopefully I boiled it down pretty well, just taking it on the face value, what it's doing. So I, I think it's a really interesting and effective tool. I would like to see more more commentary on things that need our attention that aren't getting our attention mm -hmm. and you know whenever I see a film like this it always makes me pause mm -hmm. before I say something or act just to make sure like just checking in am I doing something that's offensive am I doing something right. that I've never thought would ever be offensive but in actuality this is actually offensive sure and I feel like white people have a lot to learn yeah i feel like we have a we have a long way to go and i feel like a lot of white people are paying attention and are correcting themselves mm -hmm. but if we could have more films like this mm -hmm. i would certainly you know i would certainly be my best self for members of our society in general but more specifically the african-american population yeah so I feel like these films are important and we need more of them. And I feel like it was because it was interesting in the way it got the point across. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be offensive to the general white population. Whereas some, right, things, right, right. Yeah. some things can be offensive. Well, do you mean offensive or do you mean aggressive? Well, because sometimes a Spike Lee movie can be very much uh, aggressive and in your face. You know, and just to take the anger and just really boil it down and and, and throw it at you in, in a film. Yeah, well, and I don't know if this is related to what you've just said, but something that just came to me is it's really refreshing to see a film about white privilege, mm. what it looks like, and how it affects people who are not white. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our spoiler section and talk uh, spoilers for uh, just a few minutes. But for those who haven't seen the movie, Shanna, would you say really briefly whether or not the good outweighs the bad in this film? And, and how much would you recommend the film? I think it's all good and I think it's great to be exposed to. And I think everybody should see this film. And I think people should talk about it with their friends and family and everybody should see it. I think that we really need to, I think we made this film sound more serious than it is, and we need to really uh, emphasize how actual, how fun and funny the film actually is for the most part. But it is also a film that, is, that does become very bizarre, and I highly recommend getting ahead of this movie because in six months or so, this movie's going to be known for its third act. Yes, go and in as cold as you can. Yeah, this is the I See Dead People of this year, as far as I can tell. So, definitely see the film. The good definitely outweighs the bad in this film. This is probably one of the best films of the year so far, hands down. I highly recommend it, but I highly also recommend you skip ahead past the spoilers that we are about to talk about look at the time code, look at the show notes, skip to film faves as we get into spoilers right now. Are they gone? They better be. Is everybody gone? Well, this is one of those <laughs> movies you do not want spoiled. So, here we go. I'm going to really briefly 
concisely explain what happens in this film and let's talk about it uh, really quickly. So, Lakeith Stansfield's character, Cash, Cassius, very um, on-point named Cash, by the way, he becomes successful. He becomes a power, a power caller. He needs to use his white man's voice at all times as a power caller. Because he gets the attention of the corporate, the owner of the corporation, played by Army Hammer, who's this very affable, very privileged white dude who thinks everything he's doing is fairly reasonable. We learn that as Cash becomes into the top of the top of the top elite and into, into Army Hammer's secret circle, all is not well. All is not right. Cash discovers that what is actually happening is to increase productivity and, and decrease the potential of unionizing and, and what have you, call it, causing labor issues. He is creating horse people out of his employees. Literally. What they call them, what, equisapiens? I didn't know it was the employees. I thought it was the people who signed up for the, like, no worry program. Yes. Those are, yes, which are employees. Okay, right? gotcha. Which you don't see, obviously, in the videos going on. And he wants Cash to be a planted... Martin Luther, he calls it the Martin Luther King of the um, horse people, mm. right? These workhorses. Literally, they're like workhorses, right? They can do their jobs a lot more efficiently and pick up things a lot, lot more easily, right? Without any physical issues. He wants him to um, help rise up and make these people feel like people. And, and it, it's a very weird plan. But the plan is to turn Cash into a horse himself. And there's a question of whether or not... Cash has taken something that is going to turn him into the horse people or, or what. Cash is able to actually get away. He publicly decries what happened. He actually posts video footage of what's going on. And it has no effect. Except it does, he does come up with a scheme of this huge um, essential like protest and riot that ends up involving... I don't know how, but freeing the Equa people and Equisapiens, and they rise up against the corporation, more or less, and Cash gains his freedom, we think. Until the final last moment of the movie, when everything seems okay, we get some closure and, uh, you know, everything's perfectly fine, we see his nose is, is turning. And then, ten seconds into the credits, we see... He is full horseman, and he and others are raiding Army Hammer's mansion and are feet away from attacking Army Hammer. He's gonna die. All right? <laughs> so, that all, that's all what happens in the last 30 minutes of the movie, I believe. Shanna, what are your thoughts on, A, this development as it started happening, where, where he stumbles across the horse people... And how did it all work for you? Good or bad? Let us know. I think it was good. I, I know it's completely and utterly like, what the fuck just happened? Mm. But that's what we need in film nowadays to get the full message across is you need to have a what the fuck. It can't just be simple. Here's the humans. They're being enslaved. No, they're, here's the humans. They're being enslaved and they're being morphed into something else. 
that's going to make you what the fuck uh-huh. and be an absolute biological atrocity. So it was very, it was very bizarrely fucked up awesome. And I, I really got a kick out of it and I would be okay watching more films like this. Uh-huh. And I thought it was important for them to go into that direction. Really? Because they needed to show how messed up Army Hammer's character was. And if you had just said, just left it at, well, this is what he's doing with the No Worry program, uh-huh. then it would be like, well, it's just going to carry on, it's just going to carry on. And like we wouldn't go to the next level. There wouldn't be that extra push. Mm. But it had to be taken to the more extreme and bizarre. And that's when people really pushed and um, they didn't push immediately if you notice. They no one's watching Who's the they? news. What are you talking about? Society, the No, he became more successful at first. Yeah. And yeah. so it was this complete opposite of what you think is gonna happen when yes. you actually bring it to the people's attention. There is a very important line too, when this happens, where he's he I believe Cash is the one that says I'm going to butcher this, but it says something like, when people accept, start, after a certain point, people start to accept the unacceptable. When it right? becomes the new normal. And it becomes the new normal. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most timely and pointed lines in the entire film, I don't know if, and I don't know your thoughts on this, if this is the thesis of the film, or just one of the points of, of the film overall. Boy, what, is it perfect for today. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's Just a perfect commentary. I would definitely agree. So, for me, my mind is reeling while watching these uh, this last 30 minutes well, of the film. Can I quickly say, before we yeah. get into more crazy... Yeah. I really enjoyed that, you know, when Cassius and... What is his girlfriend's name? When they break up, Detroit. And, yeah, Detroit, and he comes to her art show anyway. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, you see her talking in a white voice <laughs> to her mm. her art buyers, and it mm. was just, wait a second, <laughs> she has to do it too. This is so bizarre that she just can't be who she is. Mm. And it's good that they showed that too, like the extent to which this this essentially nonsense is going. Yeah. Again, I think it's really point trying to point out like how blacks can't get a become successful without uh, being white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Or being homogenized or adopted, adopting white culture in some way. And I find that I find that very interesting. I find that a, a very interesting discussion of uh, or point of discussion. But yeah, the last third of the film, I'm just reeling about what's going on because I thought I had this film figured out and what the hell is going on and we have this crazy ass stop motion video that explains everything and it just keeps going. It's that and, whole cute visual right. um, play. Right. And so that's really the point where I'm like, I don't know what the hell I just watched. I actually needed a couple days to process this movie because of the last third. The only thing that doesn't work for me, I came to the conclusion that the only thing that I think is a problem is literally the last moments of the movie. 
it has this weird Twilight Zone-y kind of feel to it that I'm not sure we as an audience needed. I feel like we as an audience needed some sense of closure and, and that everything's going to be okay, at least for cash. And to end it with, oh no, he's turned anyway, days later, and, uh, and then to attempt to have us feel okay still about it because he, because Army Hammer probably got his comeuppance, Cash is still a horseman, and we don't know that there's any solution to that, you know? I don't know how physically and practically it's fathomable for there to be a solution for that. I came to the conclusion that for me, the film ends on this really mixed feeling, you know, and, and I, whereas if it had ended with everything being okay, he's, he's got a certain degree of complacency and acceptance. He's put all that stuff behind him. I feel like we could walk out of that theater feeling okay. And, you know, and I don't know, maybe, maybe we're not supposed to, but I think that's the only sour note in the whole movie that doesn't quite stick for me. I understand where you're coming from, that you know the audience needed relief. It's kind of like that, re and I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's kind of like that relief that we desperately need uh, while watching Get Out. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. But but not as conventional as the direction that Get Out goes. Well, yeah. Right? Look, I mean... Oh, you're talking about the very, very end. I'm talking about the very, very end. Oh, okay. How it could have gone. Yeah, 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 and yeah. You, no, you're 100% yeah. on board with you. Now, that was a ride. Get Out was a ride the whole time. Yeah. And we really did need that. Yeah. But the reality of the situation is, what would have really actually happened? Would it, you know? Sure, yeah. And then coming quickly back to this film, it's like, it's kind of like, hey guys, you know, this is actually the reality of the situation, mm. is... That white stuff from that guy that isn't a good guy at all, mm -hmm. it actually was what you think it was. Mm -hmm. And I almost felt not glad that it happened to him. Obviously, I never wanted that to happen to him. Uh, to Army Hammer or Cash? To, to Cash. Oh. But when he goes to Army Hammer's house and oh. is about to, I don't know what he would, maybe interrogate him or annihilate him, whichever. I'm pretty sure he's getting a pounding. Yeah. Um, I was really excited about that. I was like, because... When I saw Army Hammer, like nothing had happened to him, right. I was like, yeah. wait a second, nothing yeah. is happening to him. I'm almost glad that the vigilantes took over. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. oh, this is some good shit. Good. Yeah. You deserve what you got, what you're going to get. I guess the question just becomes, what then? I don't know. Maybe he does become the leader of them. Hmm. You know, who knows? Maybe... Yeah. Maybe he takes that and uses it to his advantage. I mean, here's what we know about him, about his character. We know that he got caught up in his head and caught up in his financial success, mm -hmm. that he lost sight of what truly mattered in order for himself to be okay. Mm. But now we're led to believe that he cares about those around him and possibly others. So what is he going to do with that now that he's an Ecosapien? Oh. You know, will yeah. he actually do something that's going to be beneficial to all of them? It's possible. For me, the implication is something awful had to happen and change him to his core. Well, and there we go. Literally. It happened. <laughs> in order 
for him to to, to make a change or something. What so I, yeah, I don't know. I just I just I kind of feel mixed about that. Was there anything that you had uh, else that you had to say about the last third of the movie or anything else that you felt like you couldn't speak to yet? One thing that is of important note, important to observe in this film is that when Cassius goes to tell people about what happened behind the scenes, mm -hmm. he's going to news agencies. Yes. Well, and it's not working out for him. Right. So then he has to go to where people do pay attention, and he has to go through that, you know, smack me to death or whatever the hell. No, I got my called. ass kicked or something like yeah. that. Yeah, the shit kicked out of me. I got the shit kicked out of me, is yeah. what it's called, yeah. And he has to go through all those awful things just to get his message heard. Right. And I thought that that was interesting. Mm. I, I really hope that we're not at that point yet, mm. but I could certainly relate to... Why is no one listening? Why is no one doing anything about XYZ? Mm -hmm. But when people do stand together and do something about XYZ, then we really move forward as a society. Mm. So I, I appreciated that that was a little nugget as well. Yeah. All right. Well, final thoughts for Sorry to Bother You. Obviously, this is definitely a thinker. We have a lot of thoughts about it. And it's... I think fair to say, because of that, definitely highly recommended on our end. Oh, yeah. And tell us what you think. Absolutely. I would give this an 8 out of 10. Where would it uh, rank for you, Shanna? Oh, that sounds about right. I would probably do the same thing. Yeah, 8 out of 10. So we're in agreement on, sorry to bother you, but how do you feel about the film? <laughs> Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. It sounded like that was your phrase, not the title of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's move on to film faves. For those who don't know, film faves is a feature where we count down our 12 favorites of any film-related topic. It's not an objective list of the 12 best of that topic, but a subjective favorites list. Hence the name. Film faves has been counting backward through time, knocking out our favorites of each year, with a couple pauses to talk about other subjects. This month, we hit the halfway mark of the 90s with the year 1995, which I'm very excited about because it's probably one of my favorite years of the decade. So let's get started. This subject was an interesting year for talent. First of all, it featured a heavy dose of debuts. Liv Tyler turned heads in Empire Records. Cindy Crawford turned people off in Fair Game. Natasha Hendridge turned geeks on in Species. Salma Hayek burned up the screen in Desperado. Jason Lee pissed Ben Affleck off in Mallrats. <laughs> and Joaquin Phoenix tripped over himself for Nicole Kidman's attentions in To Die For. Also, many actor actors had breakout roles in 1995. Alicia Silverstone became a hit in Clueless. Don Cheadle impressed many in Devil in a Blue Dress. Mira Sorvino won awards for Mighty Aphrodite. Babe was James Cromwell's first of many subsequent hits. And Angelina Jolie caught the attention of some high school boys in Hackers. Several actors did double duty in 1995. 
Sharon Stone earned accolades for her performance in Casino and took aim at Gene Hackman in The Quick and the Dead. The then-unknown Russell Crowe played good in The Quick and the Dead and evil in Virtuosity. Denzel Washington played a copy of the future in Virtuosity, a P.I. of the past in Devil in the Blue Dress, and an officer with integrity in Crimson Tide, also starring Gene Hackman. Brad Pitt lost his mind in Twelve Monkeys and his humanity in Seven. Kevin Spacey played Dustin Hoffman's scientist pal in Outbreak and was interrogated by Chaz Palminteri in The Usual Suspects. Rene Russo played Hoffman's girlfriend in Outbreak and Travolta's girlfriend in Get Shorty. Tom Hanks provided his voice for a toy cowboy in Toy Story and played a real-life astronaut in Apollo 13. Robert De Niro played a tough eluding the law in Heat and a tough trying to go legit in Casino. And Nicole Kidman played Bruce Wayne's shrink in Batman Forever and Matt Dillon's wife in To Die For. Whew. That is pretty cool. A lot of those people had a good year, I think. Mostly. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Here are some other noteworthy films of 1995. On the plus side, we had Bad Boys, The Brady Bunch Movie, Dead Man, Dead Man Walking, Dolores Claiborne, Il Postino, Leaving Las Vegas, A Little Princess, Othello, Sense and Sensibility, and While You Were Sleeping. However, 1995 was not immune to bad films. On the bad side, we watched Batman, the Batman franchise take a hit with the ridiculously named Batman Forever, a smart novel by Michael Crichton get turned into a stupid movie called Congo, <laughs> pirates become pretty lame for a long time thanks to Cutthroat Island, David Caruso leave TV for the ill-advised Jade. Stallone camp it up with Rob Schneider in Judge Dredd. Vampire Brooklyn foreshadowed the decline of Eddie Murphy's career. Kevin Costner's over-budgeted Waterworld tank. And then there was what may be the worst movie of the decade, Showgirls. However, these are our favorites of 1995. Shanna... What is your number 12? Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned the Crichton book being turned into a horrible movie, which is Congo. I had no idea. Really? So my first exposure to this film, which is my number 12, by the way, and only for the mention of the story, I believe I was six, seven, maybe? And one of my family members got it into their heads that they should take the six, seven-year-old with her four, three-year-old brother to go see this film. And seeing it at that age was absolutely horrifying. <laughs> you have all sorts of animals in South Africa, so any animal is possible except kangaroos and koalas. Mm -hmm. For a girl like... Anyway, so I thought these... Gorillas. Gorillas were going to come get me. Anyway... <laughs> You know, fast forward 20 years, I actually got a kick out of the film, and maybe it's because of the trauma that I had to begin with. <laughs> so there's a scientist who is sent by her father-in-law to determine the whereabouts of his son's missing diamond hunting team. So, of course, we're going to go to deepest, darkest Africa, and we're going to go mm -hmm. find out who the, you know, what happened to them, and it turns out, well, they're all a bunch of fucking cowboys, and... And uh, things didn't go so well for them. But alongside that, there is a primatologist, Dr. Peter Elliot, who is 
going along to take his gorilla back to Africa, or at least to visit Africa. That's right. And he can communicate with the gorilla. Right. And then there's a treasure hunter who's played by Tim Curry. Yeah. Who is fantastic. I will watch anything he's in. It doesn't matter what kind of shitty movie it is. I just want to see his face. (laughs) Literally, I want to see his face. And what I enjoy about this film now is that there's a lot of things that are very true that Mm. happen in this film with mannerisms of people from the Congo and there's this scene where he's saying have some cake and while they're getting discussions underway you know obviously they have to pay for entry to go through the the uh, jungle and they're discussing price and something doesn't work out in his favor and so he's like stop eating my cake and it's like that's exactly what happens it's like if you pissed him off you're not gonna get cake so I get a kick out of that. That's a fun film. As, as shitty a translation from the book as it must be, it's, it's still hilarious to me sometimes. I skip the end, though, oh. every time. Because oh. I just I don't want to see what happens at the end. Gotcha. Well, my number 12, it was, it was a tough one. I have a few movies fighting for this spot. The Quick and the Dead, Desperado, Bad Boys... I ended up landing on what was for a long time the best video game movie, which is a backhanded compliment because honestly it wasn't that great. It is Mortal Kombat, which is available on Netflix. I've got to get my guilty pleasure out of the way first. Yes, the CGI is primitive and the film is a touch campy and there are moments that just do not make sense. However... This film did a pretty decent job of making something out of nothing more than a bloody button masher. And it raised the bar for its genre in that it remained for quite a while one of the few video game movies that were actually watchable. There are a couple others that came later, Tomb Raider, Resident Evil. I think the latest Tomb Raider is probably the only like quote-unquote good one, unless I'm forgetting somebody. But... That is Mortal Kombat from its its shouted Mortal Kombat and its epic, uh, you know, digital score on down to, you know, getting the characters moves and everything. It's it's still a guilty pleasure and a lot of fun. So that's my number 12 to kick off this list of 1995. Shanna, what is your number 11? My number 11 is Babe. And this is a cute little film where... You know, we get to hear the animals talk. Mm-hmm. And I really miss those. So I really do miss those films, and this was one of those sweet ones. What's happening in this film is a farmer wins a pig at a fair. And he's about to make the pig Christmas dinner later on in the film, and then Christmas dinner with pig on the table doesn't happen. That's why we have a sequel. So... <laughs> You know, which I've heard is even uh, better than the first. Oh, one. well, I then just I need seen. to you know, we need to check it out. Yeah, but I really enjoyed this film, and there's a border collie mother figure that Babe bonds with, and she kind of hands down this information on how to herd sheep, and that becomes his little superpower. So it's it's really cute and fun. Very cool. My number 11 is Casino, which I feel like I'd be remiss if I were not to mention on this list, as Martin Scorsese's epic about Las Vegas casino owner, primarily played by Robert De Niro, 
but also featuring one of Sharon Stone's best performances. And of course, you have Joe Pesci, who was on fire uh, at that time in the first half of the 90s. I love him so much. Yes. Yes, I don't have a whole lot to say about uh, Casino. I will say it does not fully work for me as much as well as Goodfellas, as I'm not sure that there is as much of a point to it as, as there is with Goodfellas and some of Scorsese's best work. But it is a damn good movie with a, an excellent cast and... I just, I, I, there's no way in hell I could overlook it in favor of um, movies like Bad Boys or The Quick and the Dead. So it's my number 11, Casino, which is actually available on Netflix. Shannon, what's your number 10? All right, my number 10 is also sentimental. This, was, this is a goofy movie, and this is a favorite because my cousin's lived like i don't know 16 hours away from us and all of a sudden they moved to the same city as us and we finally got to spend time with them and one of the things we got to do was go see a goofy movie and that was the first time i also got like a promotional popcorn tub Mm. it was this huge huge plastic tub that had you know a goofy movie stuff all over it and no truly it was massive it was Mm. like those big I don't know what brand it is, but those big ice cream containers that parents get for preschool parties. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, (laughs) jeez. That's a cool deal. Anyway, you know, if you're a fan of Goofy, that's great. But I'm more of a fan of his son, Max. Uh And this is Max going, you know, going through his awkwardness. And I don't know what stage of puberty he's at, but he's in high school and they do a really, like, the awesomest prank ever that I always dreamed I would do, where they, he essentially does this kind of, like, love letter performance mm-hmm. of, you know, one of the cool, I don't know what kind of musician it is. I don't know if he falls into pop or rock or what. I don't know. And he's doing it to impress his crush, Roxanne. Mm. Uh, but then he gets busted, and then... All sorts of things ensue and change his summer plans, which I never thought that summer plans were like, why is it such a big deal for kids? But then I thought I came to America and experienced summer here. And I'm like, well, that's the only time they have to like mess around and Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So I really love this film and the songs are really fun. Like if I ever want to run, which I hardly ever do now, I just play the song and then I run for like a minute and a half because I have access to YouTube on my phone. So we live in a magical time right now. Very cool. I've never seen that, but as I understand, it is uh, based on the cartoon series Goof Troop. I love Goof right? Troop so much. Right, that's part if of that's Disney in print, afternoon. I want it. All right. Well, my next film is Mr. Allen's Opus, starring Richard Dreyfus. Here's a film that is at its heart about something universal. To know your work made a difference and meant something to somebody. Being a man who has spent most of his life trying to find a passion worth pursuing that would matter, Mr. Allen's opus still speaks very strongly to me. At the time of its release, it was so strong, my emotional response to this climactic assembly scene, to which I still choke up, that I was inspired to become a music teacher. That lasted for about a week. But <laughs> this may be Richard Dreyfuss's last great role in one of his best films of the 90s, and it still actually does have a fairly darn good 
soundtrack as well. That is Mr. Allen's Opus. Shannon, what is your number nine? My number nine is a sequel. It is Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. <laughs> and this was exciting because as a kid living in South Africa, you never see Africa represented. And all of a sudden we have my little hero, the pet detective, Jim Carrey. And he's in Africa. So if you're a fan of the first one, you might be into this one too. I got to watch this backwards because that's how it happens when I'm a kid. I get to see the second all one. The all the movies. All the freaking time. All the Terminator movies. Terminator 2. So annoying. God. I don't know what else right now. But he has essentially gone into retirement on a soul-searching retreat in the Himalayas. And the wonderful Ian McNeese comes and like coerces him out of retirement. Hmm. And this is that famous scene where they eventually go down these huge stair- staircase and he takes a slinky with him. And it goes oh. like all the way except for the three or the second last step. Very cute. And it's so funny when he comes and gets Jim, you know, Ace Ventura because all the priests are like, please take him. Please take him. <laughs> There's obviously been no sure. time for soul searching <laughs> while we're there. I mean, I can only imagine Ace Ventura was a distraction. So he comes and he has to find out who took the rare sacred animal, the white bat. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And if he doesn't find this white bat that was stolen and offered as a dowry between the two two tribes, then a war is going to break out. Mm. So it's actually a very serious matter, but of course it's silly. The stakes and, are high. Oh, yeah. It's very silly and, and fun and... yeah. I always wondered what bumblebee tuna was, and it, it truly is a can of tuna. So there we go. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bumblebee brand, yeah. I learned the word guano from that movie. Oh, that's great. And the rhino scene in particular had me in oh, stitches. Yes. So, okay, as a South African, I mean, there were giggles, but mm. like everybody was like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, as an American, I was dying with laughter my next film is toy story disney released what why is it so low i have no answer for you except there are other other movies i loved more uh to this day disney released pocahontas in 1995 while pixar debuted with toy story a cgi milestone pixar became an animation giant afterward with a bug's life toy story 2 and monsters inc and many to follow Disney struggled with Hercules, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Dinosaur. Toy Story makes this list not so much for its historical significance, but for its creativity, sense of wonder, and emotional depth. This tale of plastic figures is anything but shallow kid stuff. It never patronizes, and that's a rare thing in American animation. Shanna, what is your number eight movie? My number eight is Heavyweights. No kidding. I know it's like a weird pick, but you can tell I was, you know, I haven't had a chance to catch up on more adult films. All right. For those who don't know, what is Heavyweights about? So this is a film about essentially Fat Camp. And Fat Camp is awesome. And they have a lot of fun. They have a lot of natural fun. Okay. You know, jumping into the the lake, swimming around in the lake, Uh doing these different weird American things. 
that always made me wonder why the hell in South Africa do we not have those things mm-hmm. that involve water water play. Now, unfortunately, Ben Stiller and his huge fitness career that's like really over the top and artificial and just really you're talking about a character he plays in the movie yeah ben stiller's character comes and buys up the camp and so the camp was being you know had started out with this really funness to it and it's like okay it doesn't have to be stressful did they cheat eat they totally did so that maybe needs to be addressed but ben stiller comes in and he makes it all about fitness and military and it's just really it's every fat kid's worst nightmare Um. and they you know hilarity ensues because they're going to take the camp back and that was really fun and i'm okay with ben stiller as this crazy character i'm not always okay with ben stiller you didn't like him in a very similar role in dodgeball i think that the problem with that film is it got overplayed when i was looking after two of my favorite boys Hmm. it was played every day in the car all the time gotcha gotcha well my next movie is braveheart which is available on hulu braveheart is probably one of the bloodiest epics i have ever seen it is also incredibly inspiring in its depiction of one man's sacrifice in the name of say it with me Freedom! I was, I was gonna say Scotland, but okay. What? No. <laughs> the film's final moments kill me every time I see it. Braveheart is also interesting because of its depiction of medieval British politics, dramatized to Shakespearean levels by Patrick McGowan as the hateful dying king and Angus McFadden as his more compassionate son. Braveheart may be long, but it is the best film of 1995. And Mel Gibson's best directorial effort. So when that came out on VHS, was it like two, three, three cassettes that you two needed? Two cassettes, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah definitely. That and always I, felt so coolly epic to me. I had that too, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always thought like those were the cool kids that had the movies <laughs> that had to have two cassettes. <laughs> and that's why we're married. <laughs> um, what's your number seven? My number seven is Before Sunrise. This was a film that you introduced me to. Lovely. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll talk about it a lot, but it stars Ethan Hawke and Judy Delpy, and she is like my new favorite person. Oh, yeah. I love anything that that woman is in. And really why this is on my list is because it's a different kind of, romantic film Mm -hmm. it's all about dialogue and really about them talking and getting to know each other and depending when you met your significant other this is how you and i met is we just talked and talked Mm -hmm. and talked we emailed Mm -hmm. but i think it's the same concept as Mm -hmm. we just talked and talked and talked and got to know each other and i think that that's just so cool i wish there were more of those films at least balancing out the the crazy shit right like they found out something about the other person and we're not going to talk it out and figure out the real story behind it and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, all the drama stuff. And, yeah. you know, this is a really cool romance film. So I would even say, like, you know, when your kid is of the age, as soon as they are at that age of, like, well, maybe I can have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or some, yeah. a friend. Okay. You know, like, I, maybe they need to see that film. Because Maybe. it's really interesting. My next film is Clueless. Oh. 
I first saw Clueless. That's at... my next one too. Oh, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, give me a moment here. Explain why it's on my list. I first saw Clueless at the drive-in with my parents. I was laughing my ass off at the clever humor. My parents didn't get it. Maybe Clueless, which is a reimagining of Jane Austen's Emma for the 90210 generation, wasn't made with the 40-plus crowd in mind. Regardless, it hit on so many aspects of teen culture. The lingo, the need to impress, the social hierarchy, the constant phone calls, the misadventures of dating and relationships, most of which still resonate today. I can't help but appreciate the film. Plus, it helps that Alicia Silverstone stars, despite the fact several poor movie choices led to her fading away by the end of the 90s. Clueless was directed by Amy Heckerling, a rated movie, who also directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and once again proved her deft understanding of teenagers. So, I love Clueless. Why is it on your list? I think it was just really fun for me to see a bunch of girls hanging out. It was like a view into the American world. Mm. And so for me, that was very interesting. Very cool. And also, I won't, I won't deny, it also helps that Alicia Silverstone was damn hot when I was um, 15. I mean, I wouldn't like say that, but okay. My number six is Apollo 13. What I love about the film Apollo 13 is it took an event from history that an entire generation or two knew the outcome of and managed to make it suspenseful. Not only that, but it communicated to the audience in very clear ways each problem they faced, the characters faced, without getting bogged down in the science and math of it all. This is a film that turns something like keeping Earth visible through a window into a suspenseful moment. Director Ron Howard gathered an incredible cast. Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris, Kathleen Quinlan, whatever happened to her, and a slew of recognizable character actors for what may be the best film of Ron Howard's career. Shanna, what is your number five? My number five is A Little Princess, which is oh, available to stream on Netflix. That's a great choice. Yeah. So, this is about young Sarah, who gets sent to boarding school, be, you know, due to her father needing to go to World War One, and she tries to make the best of this horrible situation. Mm-hmm, you know, it would mm-hmm. be a horrible situation for anyone, but especially a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she tells these whimsical, wonderful tales to all her friends. Uh, anyone who will listen. Yep. But then what happens is they, they don't hear from the father, and so they assume that the father is dead. Mm-hmm. And that means no one is paying for her to go to school. Right. And the headmistress, who is a bitch of note, decides to have her work to be there. Mm. So talk about slave labor right, right there. Right, 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 <clears throat> yeah. What's awesome about this film is she's a really strong, decent person the uh, young girl mm-hmm. she's trying to stand up for cruelty to others and she's trying to be true to who she is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's directed by Alfonso Cuaron by the way who later would do Harry Potter and the Prison of Azkaban and Children of Men also worth checking out the original Shirley Temple film too but that is an excellent pick for I 1995 I have never seen a Shirley Temple film worth it for sure that is one actress that was never underrated. Or overrated, I mean. 
My next film is Before Sunrise, which you had mentioned before. Yay! <laughs> so here's the thing. Have you ever met someone that you connected with so well you easily spent hours talking with that person shortly after meeting? Before Sunrise is a film for anybody who has and really loves experiencing that level of stimulation with someone new. It is a film about nothing more than two people talking. But, like my dinner with Andre, the dialogue transcends the mundane premise to an engaging experience. Much of the film's success can be attributed to the chemistry between Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and their collaboration with director Richard Linklater. The film contains an open ending that was answered by a magnificent sequel before Sunrise, which also left the fate of this couple open to interpretation. If you love, if you require your love stories to be cutesy and plot-driven, then Before Sunrise is not for you. But if you appreciate a love story with great characters and feels authentic, you'll love Before Sunrise. Shannon, what's your fourth favorite film of 1995? So exciting. My number four is available to stream. Yay! So not only is it a great movie, it can be streamed. A Little Princess was available to stream too, yeah? Didn't you mention that? Oh, I, I believe I did. Yeah. But just in case, it's Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> so another Netflix film for us, my number four, is Seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, are you going to talk about this? Maybe, we'll see. Okay, we'll just... What do you have to say? Why it's on your list? That means yes, guys. So I, <laughs> I'm a huge crime film and TV show person. Yes, you are. That's why and I showed you this film. Yes. So this was a good film to watch. This is the kind of film where the cinematography matches, you know, what the story is. Uh-huh. So it's very green, very toxic, very like warning, warning yellows, all the way through this film, and it's very dark and just so fascinating Mm. what happens in this story i don't want to give away anything Mm -hmm. because i feel like there's a lot of references that people make to this film out there that you might not know are connected to this film Mm. but when you watch it you're like oh my god that's what it's connected to Mm -hmm. and that's what's actually happening yeah and so it's very disturbing but it stars brad pitt morgan freeman and Kevin Spacey, and it also even has, I believe, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, she's a major character in it, yeah. So uh, it's a really great film, and I highly recommend it to the crime people. Mm-hmm. Not the criminals. Crime fans, yeah. <laughs> the crime fans out there, it's, it's worth the watch. But uh, don't watch it at night. <laughs> it's not good. And if you can, try not to watch it alone. So my next film is The American President, which is a damn good movie. Which you can watch alone, night or day. Yeah. <laughs> it should come as no surprise that it's a damn good movie, since the script was written by Aaron Sorkin, who recently made his directorial debut with Molly's Game, and has also written the, and created The West Wing, and, and also wrote The Social Network, and whose voice really stands out. This film is directed by Rob Reiner, who did When Harry Met Sally and a bunch of other films, Stand By Me and such, and stars Michael Douglas, Annette Bening, Martin Sheen, Michael J. Fox, David Paymer, John Mahoney, who recently passed away, and a bunch of other talented actors. The dialogue is dizzying when about bills and re-election strategies, but at other times incredibly witty and charming. Not only that, but it's smart enough to realize the practical effects and cynical responses the public would have 
to a situation such as the one presented in this film. Douglas and Benning are both hilarious and convincing as president and lobbyist who date and get swept away by their fairy tale romance. I think that the American president might be the smartest crowd pleaser of 1995, and it predated the whole Clinton and Lewinsky scandal by like a year or two. So it definitely shows, while that isn't nearly as as wholesome as a widower going out on a date, finally, it definitely shows an, an, an iota of how people would react to what the president's personal business is. So that's The American President, and it is my fourth favorite film of 1995. My third favorite is Toy Story. You've already mentioned a lot about this, but what I thoroughly enjoy about this film is Woody. Mm. He goes through an array of emotions. Mm. He has quite the character arc, mm. and it's in a children's film that yeah. was totally mainstream. Yeah. And that's important, and that's what Pixar is known for, is showing all the nitty-gritty, all the bad along with the good, mm. when they do it right. Yeah. Such as Inside Out is another good example. Oh, God, yes. And it's important to know that if you, back to Woody, like, if you mess up, you have to fix it, and then everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you, can't, you don't have to wallow. Just fix it, make it right, and, and do it for the right reasons, not just in benefit to you. Mm. So there's a lot of good lessons in that film. And also it's extraordinary. It's such a great film to watch when you're so young. And imagine, well, are my toys having a chit-chat while I'm gone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are they saying? I remember I went to such lengths as uh, we had a tiled floor, and I would place toys wherever and mm-hmm. I would put a marker around where they were to see if they moved while I was away. So That's super cute. It's it's a really great film. My third favorite film of 1995 is GoldenEye. The James Bond franchise was dead for roughly five years. Then it came back with a bang. GoldenEye not only returned the franchise to theaters but reinvigorated it with great casting and by hitting every Bond staple perfectly. The theme song, sung by Tina Turner, written by Bono and The Edge of U2, the credit sequence, the villain, Sean Bean's 006, the henchman, Fonka Janssen's Xena on a top, the Bond girl, played by Isabella Scorpico, plus it had some great action sequences. Brosnan's run in the franchise delivered diminishing returns with each entry. However, Goldeneye remains my favorite in the entire history of the franchise save maybe for skyfall or casino royale but definitely of uh brosnan's films and that is my third favorite film of 1995 shannon my second is usual suspects oh really i watched this for the first time seven years ago Mm. maybe eight and what a treat i had no idea what i was getting into i I just was like, okay, let's just go with it. This is what's available for me to watch. Let's mm-hmm. just see what happens. Yeah. And now it's like one of my favorite films. Wow. And it's, again, for the crime fans. Huh, yep. Kevin Spacey and Seven. Kevin Spacey and Usual Suspects. Yes. So that's kind of funny. And we shall say no more <laughs> about that. Yeah. Go and check that one out. There will also be references you've heard before. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. My second favorite film 
is Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third Die Hard film, probably my favorite Die Hard film, because it's so damn fun. I mean, yeah, I maintain it's, uh, it's the most fun and one of the best of the whole series. Simon Gruber is more a me more memorable villain than whoever Die Harder's villain was, and could kick live free Die Hard's internet geek baddie up and down the New York City streets. <laughs> Vengeance literally starts off with a bang, preceded by the loving spoonful Summer in the City. And there are a few things in the series more enjoyable than watching Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson bicker while on a wild goose chase. The original Die Hard may be the better film, but I love Vengeance for its unforgettable popcorn thrills. That is my number one. Oh no shit! And it's available to stream on HBO. Oh, awesome. What a fantastic film. I just, I loved it so much. And I thought that the combo of, I don't know who thought of that, but Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis. Yeah. What a great combo. Yeah, for sure. And just the antics that happen in this film mm -hmm. are hilarious to see. And I remember I had watched the best part of this film mm -hmm. years ago. But then something happened. We had a power outage. So I never even knew what I was watching mm -hmm. and never got to watch it again. And then recently, I think about three or four months ago, mm -hmm. I rediscovered this film. And I was like, oh, my God, it was that film all along. And it was just fantastic. And I love everything about that film. It's a blast for sure. My favorite film, however, of 1995 is Seven. Nice choice. Yes, uh, I, I'm surprised it wasn't higher for you, but uh, a serial killer preaches society's sins one murder at a time, and it's up to two detectives to find him before his work is complete. Morgan Freeman plays the seasoned detective who has seen the horrors man is capable of and wants to retire while he still has a shred of humanity left in him. Brad Pitt plays the hot-headed new blood who is so concerned with proving himself or being patronized that he refuses to learn from his partner's wisdom. The climax is diabolically clever and nightmarish, paced so deliberately that the suspense is nearly intolerable. Seven is a great film and my favorite of director David Fincher's career. So, that's the year 1995. Not a bad year, huh? It was, a, it was a pretty decent year, yes. Yeah, definitely better than 96, I think, even though it had its hits. What is your favorite film of 1995? Email us at the Gibson at Shanna, before we talk about the next episode, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? You can find me at www.shannapaxton.com, S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N, and from there you will be able to find me on whatever social media platform your heart desires, except twi Twitter and <laughs> Pinterest. Okay, <laughs> very cool. You can go to thegibsonreview.com to find past uh, episodes, past articles, the original Film Faves 1995 article. You can go to Facebook slash The Gibson Review to find all sorts of things, including third-party links. You can go to Flickchart, The Gibson 99, to find all the films I have ever seen, as far as I know. 
But let's talk about our next episode. The next episode, we thought it was going to be this episode. It's actually this episode. This next episode is our review of Mission Impossible Fallout. We talked about, at least maybe I talked about the Mission Impossible series a few episodes back, having watched through all but number two. Big fan of the series. Shanna, you're a fan of the series too? Oh, yeah, especially if I get to see it at the Cinerama. Wow. Wow. Well, we'll see if that's possible. I know it's for really us. specific, but. Yeah, it's very specific, but I could see why. I could see why for that sure. Big screen. And then, as far as film faves goes, we'll either talk about the year 1994 and get medieval on your ass in the circle of life while Johnny Depp makes bad movies, you know, for kids, and Jim Carrey talks Wait, out of what? his ass. And Jim Carrey talks out of his ass, Schwarzenegger leads a double life, and Keanu Reeves gets on a bus. Or, it's been a while since we've had a themed list. Maybe we could talk about our favorite Tom Cruise movies or something. I don't know. But uh, definitely keep an eye out on the show notes and on Facebook for updates. And don't miss the next episode. It will be hitting around August 7th. So that's when you can expect that episode. We will see you then. Keep loving the movies. Until then. Bye-bye.